0: about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: This is Hamilton Today. Welcome aboard. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson. The other Scott is ailing. Not COVID. Not COVID He's okay. Just, you know, feeling a little bit today. It's, it's been a long stretch. It's a long stretch. So Scott, so, so I'm in sitting in, I'm in the in the chair keeping it warm for Scott today. He'll be back tomorrow. But thank you for being here. And by the way, that song, that was Lisa Peleski's choice. She'll be up later in the show. Auto Heart with Moscow. A group and a song that clearly I am aged out of knowing about. <laughs> but I learned it now. We have learned it now. One more to add to the phone and to Apple Tunes. Uh, folks, thanks for being here. Really are glad you're along. We have got a jam-packed show. Will, who is on the board today and who has also been... Content producing has lined up a a stellar all star cast of topics. Can you have a cast of topics? I'm not sure. I think you need people, but we have those two. Let me tell you what's coming up on the show today. We are going to be talking about, of course, uh, well, we got a small business we're going to be talking about with a really interesting situation they're facing. Any small business right now, boy, right before Christmas. Mm. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, And we are going to be talking a little bit about what's going on in the world and what is happening right now because uh, heaven knows we are all seemingly caught up in this and unable to get away from it omicron covid coronavirus whatever you want to call it it is uh it is the never-ending swirling story of doom i mean even the city today email came out uh, press release came out today lisa just mentioned it on the news City facilities are shutting down now beginning Saturday and running through the end of January. Uh arenas, rec centers, senior centers, museums. There is a feeling, is there not? A vague recollection feeling of March 2020. I mean, I I I I am so loath to say that. I there is not a soul alive that wants to flash back in time to March 2020 and start this whole thing over again. But, boy, it kind of, it has a little bit about that feeling, which means that we're not doing all of that today. We've got lots of other stuff. So this is not going to be your Omicron center. I mean, what we're talking about it because it's in the news, but we've got lots of other stuff. We are nine shopping days. Well, actually eight, because I don't think you shop on Christmas day, right? We are eight shopping days, as they always say, away from Christmas. But it's not just about shopping, obviously. There are other, thankfully, some people remember, other facets to Christmas, getting together with family, hopefully we can do that, and giving, which is a huge part of this. And thankfully, you know, it seems in recent years that that's even become more of a thing for a lot of people, or at least more public a thing, that more people are Deciding they are going to take some of the money they would spend on other things for Christmas and give it to people who are a little less fortunate. Well, I want to bring in Laura Carmichael, who's the associate executive director of City Kids, um, to talk about what happened with the Giving Tuesday a few weeks ago. Uh, Laura, thank you for being with us today. Really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh,
1: for those who don't know, and I, I assume most have heard of Giving Tuesday by now. Explain Giving Tuesday, because it is, I think it's a new thing, or at least it's a new thing widely seen as a new thing. What is Giving Tuesday?
2: Yeah, great question. So Giving Tuesday is really an opportunity for all sorts of individuals, everyone really to be invited into giving to local causes or causes that are more broad to be intentional about giving financial donations to organizations that are really trying to support the needs of the communities that they're in.
1: Okay, so it's just, it is it is simply as it's described, just a way that you can find some place, some charity, some group to give something to, to help out. Right after, I think it was Cyber Monday, right? So everyone spends their brains out on all the stuff they want and then says, okay, I, I I do remember what the meaning of Christmas is, I should probably help out a little bit with someone else too.
2: Absolutely, it allows us to be centered and focused and to consider the whole community during the season of Christmas.
1: And just for the, you know, and I hate to do such background stuff, but for the five people listening who don't know much about City Kids, what is City Kids?
2: (laughs) Yeah, City Kids is a Hamilton-based organization, and we are all about inspiring big dreams for children who are living in low-income communities to helping them have hope, to believe that they can achieve great things with their life, that we want to be able to come alongside them and to be able to know them, to love them, to care for them and to really journey with them as they understand their own gifts and chase after their dreams.
1: You have been described and I don't know, I don't know if you like this title or not, but with city kids as the Christmas specialist, it's kind of a cool name. <laughs> if you're going to have a title on your business card, Christmas specialist is as good as any, I suppose. Why do you think though? Cause you know, Christmas gifts are not food. They're not, you know, they're not an essential of life. They're not clothes to keep you warm, but they're really important. Why do you think? kids getting a gift on Christmas is really important.
2: I love that question. I am passionate about Christmas and really passionate about the gift of Christmas campaign here at City Kids. I think that while a toy itself may not be an essential, when we are giving a toy to a child, you know, it's not the toy, it's the gift of Christmas. And that gift is actually the fact that they are known by someone who is selecting the gift for them, that they have the relationship with that volunteer who knows them by name, who understands their interests who understands what brings them joy and hope. And so the toy itself is really speaking the language of the child. But I think what it does is allows us to meet that essential need that we all have to belong, to be significant, to have hope in our lives.
1: Which is, so when, and I don't know if you've ever done the delivery of the gifts, um, is it is it uplifting to do it? Is it, I mean, I, I'm assuming it's uplifting. It's always uplifting to give a gift, but there's also the flip side that it can be I would think, really emotionally difficult to be going into these environments, into these places and seeing these kids that otherwise don't have something like this.
2: It's a, it's truly really an incredible experience to be able to be part of delivering the gift of Christmas. And we are in relationship with our families throughout the entire year. So it's not a delivery that happens in isolation. It's we have relationships with our families, some of them from the time that the children are three until the children are 17. So it's really a part it's an extension of family and community. And so, going and being able to deliver the gift is an opportunity to reinforce the relationship, to celebrate together with the family at the door, and to really honor um, just the family and their participation in City Kids.
1: I asked you a moment ago for the very few people that don't know about City Kids to explain <laughs> it. But that said, I think that most people, if only by the red buses that drive around the city, I think people around here are familiar with the organization. Does that help when it, when it comes time because there's a lot of charities that are needing money at Christmas time? Does it help when there's a real familiarity for people that they can believe that when they give the money that it's going somewhere that it's supposed to go?
2: I think so. And you know, City Kids has been present in Hamilton for almost 30 years. And so I, I believe that we have a credibility with the community where people know that as they are giving their time, their financial resources or toys, that we are going to do all that we can to see that investment multiplied within the community. And so it is um, going towards food, it's going towards the toys, it's going towards running the buses themselves. But I believe that if you connect with City Kids, you know very quickly that we are authentic, you see our heart, and you know that we are 100% about serving our community. And so people tend to love to get um, on board with that.
1: Is it too late for someone to help out for Christmas?
2: It is definitely not. So okay, while we okay. Are... <laughs> no, it's great. I love that. We have, as you can imagine, to create the gift of Christmas, to deliver um, personally selected toys to approximately 2,000 children, it's a huge undertaking. And so one of the biggest things that we are still looking for help with is for financial donations. We have a goal of raising between one hundred and forty dollars to $150,000 in order to make this happen, and while we are well on our way, thanks to the incredible generosity of the community, we still have some some room to go and we would love to see that goal achieved.
1: And so we only have a few seconds. If someone wants to find your website or be able to do that, what is it?
2: www.citykids.ca. Kids is spelled with a Z, and you can just click on Donate Today.
1: It is uh, it is a fantastic organization. There are lots of great organizations around the city doing amazing things. City Kids certainly one of them. Uh, www.citykidswithaz.ca. Laura Carmichael, thank you so much for this. Thanks so much. Survivor, yes, the Survivor finale was last night. Now here, here's your opportunity. We're going to be talking about what happened in the finale and the winner. So consider this your spoiler alert. If you like my family does records this and watches it later. You've got about five seconds to turn down your radio and come back in about 10 minutes. Okay, good. We carry on. Spoiler alert given, I feel no obligation from here on. Uh, Last night, yes, in Survivor, season finale, and for the first time ever, a Canadian won Survivor, Toronto's Erica Kasupadana. I said that name wrong, but you get the idea. Uh, She took home the million-dollar check, however... That was good news, I think. I think we're all excited when a Canadian does well on a show like this. However, the downside is ratings this season have not been good. And a lot of people are saying this was the worst season ever, and a show that is beloved by many people is heading in the wrong direction. Let me bring in our favorite TV critic, writer, commentator, Bill Briou, who joins us now. Bill, how are you today?
3: I'm doing well, Scott. How are
1: you? I am, well, I don't have a million bucks because I didn't play Survivor, but next time, next time, I would, would you do it? If, if you could have a chance to go on and do Survivor, would you do it?
3: Well, maybe if I could lose all the weight by just eating rice once a week, uh, <laughs> uh, I think I would be terrible. You know, I my hat's off to Rudy, the original old guy on the show. He uh, lasted right in the finale, but uh, this is really a, a very vigorous, uh, you know, uh, it's called survivor not for nothing and you've got to be young and tough to play i
1: I realized that after a Canadian won yesterday that um in all likelihood that'll be the last time they let that happen this was the first time they ever let a Canadian on the show and they go and I think maybe the second time anyway they go and win it right away so that uh, will probably be banned from future survivors it'll be Americans again right that's how it works
3: yeah it's just like the blue Jays you know once they won the World Series you know, the, the calls never went their way again. The that, that, U.S. networks are not going to let that happen twice, but, or three times, I should say. But, yeah, it's remarkable. You know, um, I would talk to Mark Burnett, who was the co-creator of the series way back in the day, and say, you know, Survivor is like, a, always has been like a huge hit in Canada. When are you going to do a Canadian version? Why not do a winter version? And uh, they would never do it because of, red tape and insurance and their contracts. And also, they didn't want to shoot a show with a bunch of people out in the snow. They wanted the bikinis. They wanted Fuji. But I'm uh, thrilled that a Canadian has finally broken through and won. And the
1: fact that this was the 41st season and we're still talking about it and they still have viewers, um, it says something. It says that there's there's still some magic in this show, right?
3: Yeah, it's stunning, really. I, I don't know if the show started in uh, 1999 or, 19, or uh, 2000, but been on 21 years at least. Of course, it sat for a while because of COVID, um, but uh it's uh, not many examples of a show retaining its popularity over 20 years and 41 editions. It truly is astounding. I mean, American Idol was a much bigger show for a little while, then it flamed out. Um, you know, nothing has come along since, and in Canada. I mean, Survivor will probably be the most watched show this week in uh, on the Canadian top thirty.
1: What
3: what is it about
1: it that works, Bill?
3: Like, wh- why? Ha- what's your
1: theory of why? Unlike some of those other shows, why has this one lasted?
3: Well, I think it's it's just it really is real. I mean, if you look at a lot of the uh, singing competitions, a lot of them now, like uh, the Masked Singer, they're gimmicks. And with Survivor, really? I'm oh, sorry, you know, uh, no heresy. But Survivor, you know, you really have to stand on a stick longer than anybody else, or uh, you really have to find the immunity idol in the swamp. You've got to uh, eat the bugs. It, it, it's not easy. And uh, not only that, there's the whole mental game. <laughs> You've got to outfox your opponents. It's a game of chess with people. And so uh, I think it just fascinates people to see uh, that tribal council moment and how uh, that plays out uh, with a jury of your peers and how conniving and cunning people can be when their backs are against the wall.
1: Our time is short, unfortunately, but um, there have been ratings problems, though. It's been dropping in the States. It's, it's still doing okay in Canada. They've been having problems in the States, and two of the things that people point to, I'll, I'll just mention the first one. I want to talk more about the second one. The one thing they say is they keep making it more and more and more complicated. It should be a simple game that keeps getting more things thrown in, which people say, well, I don't know if we need that. But the other part that got a lot of attention this year was that they said, you know what, this year more than any other, it seemed as though there was a huge it attempt to bring a lot of social issues into the game. Almost every tribal council, it was about the racial issues or this or that. And a lot of people on social media especially say, look, I watched this show to escape from all the stuff in life. It's supposed to be an hour of relief from life. I don't really want all that stuff brought into my entertainment. Do they have a point? Or should this be a platform every week for that kind of thing? You
3: know, Scott, I think all of television is struggling with that right now, that diversity and, you know, uh, shaking things up and making the people you see on television look more like the people on your street. Um, And so I applaud them for that. But I do think that uh, TV is not always the one on the cutting edge. And uh, sometimes you can jump the gun, I guess. Um, Survivor has had a diverse cast of winners over the years. This is the first Canadian. There hasn't been many women in a long time. Erica was the, I think only the second woman on the last 15 or so champions. So, um, I, I guess too, Jeff Probst, I guess is the host of this and he wants to push it to be about more than just, uh, surviving, I guess. Um, but I do think you can gimmick it up too much. You know, I know they cut back on the rice this year. They, they they changed some of the games up. And when you get right down to it, I think that the format works just the way it was originally conceived. It is, uh, you will see. I mean, the numbers,
1: uh, I think it still will do quite well, as you say, in Canada, the States. It seems a bit more of a struggle. And I, I just wonder if, as I say, if like award shows, the Academy Awards and stuff, when you make it too political and Make it too much like real life if people say, I'll find something else, but we we will see. Uh, Bill Breu, always appreciate your time on the show today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton
0: Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: I think I probably speak for a number of people, or at least you're the same story. I'm not speaking for you. We shared the same story that my wife and I had a trip planned in the new year, and that is now canceled right? Some of you out there, hands up, if that's you, uh, I'm sure it is. Not because I was all that worried about getting COVID. I figure I've gone this far. I've probably got a good chance and I've been vaccinated and all the rest. I worry more about the possible quarantine situation I'll be stuck in. If I did go across the border and then have to try and get home somehow, and I'm stuck on the other side, didn't make a lot of sense to take that risk and now that Omicron is taking off and seems to be everywhere, we're hearing rumors that travel restrictions are going to be reintroduced. Already, we've had advisories against non-essential travel, and this, of course, all happening right at or right before the busiest travel time of the year, usually anyway. Uh, I got to think this is about the worst possible news for the travel industry and for people who love to travel. Want to bring in Kaylee Aline. She's an editor. She's a journalist. She's a media consultant. She joins us now. Kaylee, thanks for this today. really appreciate your time.
4: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: I have to think that, again, if you are uh, working at all in the travel industry, what's been happening in the last few days has been uh, devastating. Is devastating too strong a word? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not.
4: It is. And you don't realize how far the travel industry extends. You know, it is our flights, our hotels, but also a lot of our local tour operators from everything from, you know, the family owned businesses that rent equipment to the tour groups to, you know, the travel agents. It extends quite far who uh, these kind of um, travel restrictions impact and also just kind of how they need to pivot their livelihood, which is really, really tough after the last two years that we've had.
1: No kidding, because that's all they've been doing is pivoting. I mean, it's been a constant state of pivot. It's like Ross and Friends going up the stairs with the with the sofa. I mean, it's it's just nonstop pivoting. What the travel agency and travel industry has been doing.
4: Yeah, and right now we actually feel like at that moment when the sofa fell <laughs> and crashed. <laughs> that's what it all feels like right now. Where you know we don't quite know what it looks like. We don't quite know what hope looks like. Um, but then it's also you know this new variant is spreading quite quickly. So it's trying to figure out, you know, what's our own risk? What's the risk that we're coming to? And what does, you know, the the future hold for us in order to keep ourselves and others safe?
1: Yeah, and and the real, I I would think one of the real issues here is all that work to, for all these people in the industry to stay afloat. And then it all of a sudden looked like the light at the end of the tunnel was here and Christmas was coming and the numbers were going down and you know what, everyone's going to get back to traveling again. And now, I I mean, I can't imagine, Kaylee, that there are long lines to buy plane tickets or long lines for people to book hotels in the southern states or whatever else. I mean, it would seem that everything probably has just, the brakes have been slammed on everything right now.
4: Yeah. And I think, you know, if you are financially able to, especially if you're working with an independently owned hotel or, you know, a family owned tour provider, it's much better to postpone your trip than to cancel altogether because for them, this is their livelihood as well. And it's a really, really tough time. You know, it's not the right time to travel. It's not the right time to embark on these trips, but potentially if you can kind of, you know, keep supporting them in any way you can, then that would be fantastic. A lot of these um, Mm. travel operators also have their own kind of gift shop. So whether that (laughs) they sell products um, like candles or their bedding or special beauty products from their spa, like, any way you can support them because this has been a devastating two years for the travel industry.
1: Do you think there's a concern at all that people m- who might have otherwise traveled or, or loved to travel in the past will have found other things to do in the last two years because they haven't been able to do this? They found other ways to spend their money and when the doors open again that that, that all those people are not going to come back? Or do you think it's the opposite? Do you think the second... It's clear to go again that there's going to be just an absolute swarm of people looking to travel.
4: I think it's going to be this swarm of people. You know, I've been one of those people who've been fairly grounded for the last two years, and I used to travel, you know, multiple times a month for work. Um, you know, I put my money into my home and activities at home, and I've painted every room and done every single you know, craft project under the sun.
5: But it's safe uh-huh.
4: to travel you know, I'm booking my plane ticket and I'm ready to go. I think the difficulty is really understanding when it's safe to travel and what to do. And, you know, maybe it's looking locally. So if airlines and border closures feel unpredictable, what is there to do within Ontario? What is there to to do within a province away? You know, there's some really great opportunities that are in driving or train distance or might be a little bit more accessible and a little less daunting during this time too
1: yeah, and and you know, the one thing that's going to be a real interesting question is when this whole thing comes out of this because these the industry has lost so much money, are we going to be seeing deals to get people back going, or are we going to see prices that reflect the fact that they've lost so much money and prices have to go up? And that I got to think that's going to have an impact, too, on whether people travel,
4: yeah, we're seeing a little bit of both. Um, you know, recently, I booked a family vacation to the new club Med in Charlevoix. It's the ski and ski at one that just opened earlier this month by Le Massif, and there were some really, really good deals for family travel, um, and I was booking that around Black Friday, so that was before <laughs> all the variants of concern, um, but there were some incentivizations for people to travel within Canada, and then, you know, that trip I haven't canceled quite yet. It's only, you know, just outside of Quebec City, so I'll kind of assess it a little bit closer, too, but then my thought is... If flights aren't the safest way to travel, I can drive there. It's an all-inclusive resort, so I'm able to kind of, you know, have my meals potentially delivered to my room where everything feels a little bit more self-contained. Um, and you're able to kind of mitigate your own risk. But it's, to be honest, it's it's very uncertain. You know, we could hit a month or two out of the road and we could have the you no know, travel between provinces. Like, it's really hard to predict.
1: So yeah, it's a hard time that's, to that's out, the big you know, problem in the future. That is one of the real big problems. It's the hard to predict, and travel requires planning ahead of time most of the time. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of issues around this, hopefully soon, because I, I am certainly ready to go, and I know a lot of other people are as well. Kaylee Aline, Lee, I yeah. always, always appreciate the time. Thank you for doing this today.
4: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: Everybody's favorite part of the show, the roundtable. Today, featuring Lisa Pulaski in the newsroom, Ken Mann in the newsroom, and really, the only regular on the show, on the panel, but that's okay. Will Erskine, Operating Things. Folks, thanks for doing this.
6: Happy to be here. Mm, lots of fun.
1: <laughs> All right, so um, let us uh, let us begin here, uh, my learned friends. And Lisa, beginning with you, the Twitter poll today. Do you think elementary and high school students are going to be forced to switch to remote learning in the new year? For those, before you get to it, you can vote on that on Twitter at 900CHML. But Lisa, if you were casting a vote in that one... Yes or no to remote learning in the new year?
7: I want to say no because I think we've been doing this for so long and now the kids are able to be vaccinated at this point. They're just getting vaccinated, so their immunity should be kind of top you know, top as it, as fresh as it can be, and um, I mean, they've the kids have been going it through it so much over the past two years. They've been pulled in and out, in and out, and it really is detrimental to their well being. From what we, everything we've heard from the experts, and I, I just I I can't. I really hope that the province isn't going to do that after the new because it's it's too much at this point.
1: But wishes and hopes. What's that yeah. line about ifs and buts, no I know. and nuts with all so. Yes or no, will it be? I hope's aside because I know what we all hope. Yes or no, will they be in school in the new year or will they be remote?
7: Uh, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. I'm going to call it right now. Yeah. They're going to be in uh, school. Yeah.
1: In school. Okay. I think a lot of people just cheered. Uh, Ken? Are you going to be Mr. Popular by echoing that? Or do you think (laughs) that maybe they will be on remote?
6: I am going to echo that actually. I, I think they will stay in school. As long as the story with this new variant stays the same as it has been so far, where it is highly transmittable, but not as severe in terms of illness. I, I think that's a key factor here because it keeps the hospitalizations down. And I think that as long as that story stays the same, that they will stay in school. But if those um, hospitalization Ooh. numbers start to go up and we start to see the more severe illness, that could change things dramatically and quickly.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a very good point. And I think you're right. I think uh, at this point, it's it looks okay, but. You know, who knows? Uh, Will, what do you think?
8: Uh, I was uh, thinking about this long and hard this morning, as I usually do with the Twitter poll, and... I've come to the decision that they're, uh, I think we're all in agreement. They will stay in school. Uh, I think there might even be people yelling at the province to pull them out of school, probably at some point. But I think, as Lisa said, with the vaccinations that are happening, the fact that we have a more nuanced approach to things and uh, uh, the overall situation, we have a different handle on it than we did before. I think the kids are going to stay in school, even if other things start to become a little more familiar as we head uh, into January.
1: Yeah, I think we have to have seen some cases in kids. and like I'm not looking for sacrificial lambs, I don't mean that, but I think we have to have seen some issues with kids before we say, let's do this, because as far as I can tell, we're still facing the issue where most of the very serious cases are in those who are older or who have other conditions. So um, we will see. Uh, Okay, let's switch to something far less dire than that, folks. Uh, Today... Is National Chocolate Covered Anything Day today? It is actually a day. National Chocolate Covered Anything. Ken, now I don't know if you got any allergies, so we can you know just play along here. But if you could have, what is the best thing when covered with chocolate?
6: Well, uh, I, I, I'm really big on the salty sweet combination, and 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 so I'm going to go with things like peanuts and pretzels when you cover something crunchy like that with chocolate and, and you mm. get that soft chocolatey cover on it and that combination mm-hmm. uh, that combination as i say of salty and sweet is pretty irresistible to me so i'm going to stick with uh, uh peanuts and pretzels as the as the best thing raisins up there as well and if you want to get away from candy a little bit pancakes is is a good mm. one too yeah
1: when you describe it as that soft chocolatey cover you should be in the marketing business the food marketing business <laughs> i'm i'm drooling as you say that all right lisa best thing covered by chocolate.
7: Okay, I'm going to go classic with, you know, strawberries and fruit and things like that. But I when when uh you get kind of gave the inkling that this was going to be what we were talking about, I looked up a list and I forgot that they covered bugs in chocolate. And like you could get chocolate-covered crickets and things like that. And I mean, it sounds disgusting, sure. But curiosity kind of makes me want to try it. And all right. Yeah, all right. <laughs> which, I mean, it, it's all not right. the same as like a chocolate-covered strawberry, but I want to try it. It's chocolate. It makes everything good, right?
1: I've, I've eaten a roasted grasshopper in Uganda, and it was way better than I thought it was going to be, honestly. And now they, they roasted it in spices and things, so you don't really taste anything. But, uh, you know, I think it probably, the chocolate would cover it. I think, I it think would just right. probably taste like a would...
7: nut or something. Like a Probably. like a
8: pecan or a
1: nut, yes, <laughs> with legs. Yeah, it's fine. With
8: legs, it's fine. Will an entire rotisserie chicken? <laughs> <laughs> Ambitious. <laughs> Yeah. I will eat that. Put that in front of me. Uh, I might go... I don't know if this counts as classic. It is by now, but uh, peanut butter. I am a big fan mm. of... Uh, and I worked for years with uh, with children at another job, and I had to go without peanut butter and without chocolate covering peanut butter because I was just going to be careful like that. And when I, you know, started full-time here in radio, that was like the first thing I went out and bought at a gas station after one of my first shifts. Um, I love mm. that. Uh, I would try chocolate-covered bugs as well. And uh, more chocolate, just different types of chocolate on top chocolate of each other. Chocolate covered chocolate. I'll All take right. it. Last no year I there.
1: saw no. That's pretty good. Chocolate covered chocolate. That's um. Uh, last year I, I saw something and I tried it and I made chocolate covered bacon. And you want to know something? It was magnificent. Ooh. It it was absolutely. Now I mean, not if you don't. Not if you're a vegan. <laughs> probably not high on your list of things to eat, but it was um, still it was might amazing. taste right.
8: delicious to them.
1: It was well, yeah, it might, but probably not as I say high on the list of things to do. Uh, we have a minute or so, a minute and a half left. I want to read you now. This is a very long obituary. I can't read you the full thing. I want to read you the first little bit and to, and ask whether this is an obituary that you would like to have written about you, the style, or if this is something you would say, no, 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 no. I want sad and maudlin. Here we go a plus-sized Jewish lady redneck died in El Paso on Saturday. Of itself, hardly good news, or good news if you're the type that subscribes to the notion that anyone not named you dying in El Paso, Texas is good news. In which case, I've got good news for you. The body, fertile, redheaded matriarch of a sprawling Jewish-Mexican-redneck-American family has kicked it. And it goes on from there. Very, very, very funny, very loose, very whatever else. Will, when you go, hopefully many, many, many years from now, would you be okay with your family writing a funny obituary about you, or do you want something sad that tells the story of Will Be Gone?
8: (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Make it very funny. I have uh, left specific instructions with some friends and uh, even some people around the round table right now about how uh, bad I want them to be with any uh, comments about me after death. Uh, Yeah, I want a funny obituary. I want something that makes you guffaw and questions uh, the reliability and truthfulness of Whoever wrote that, I want a, I want a Wild West tale around me. Go for oh, it. All right, Lisa.
7: Can I request like an epic story that isn't actually kind of exaggerates what I actually accomplished <laughs> in life and kind of compare like written in the style of like the Lord of the Rings or something? <laughs> where it describes my accomplishments in in great detail, but uh, maybe exaggerating them. For <laughs>
1: Lisa is yeah. now in Mordor.
7: Yeah. Yes. Um. <laughs>
1: Ken, what do you say? Well,
6: the obituaries for those that are still around to read it. So I say, yeah, sure, go ahead, do whatever you want. Uh, I'm yeah. actually, as a Browns fan, I'm reminded of this one that was in Cleveland at one point <laughs> a few years ago. Yes. And it was, uh, it requested six Browns players to uh, be the pallbearers so the team could let me down one more time. <laughs> oh,
1: burn! <laughs> See, that is perfect. Uh, Ken May, Lisa Polesky, Will Erskine, thank you for this.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: It is Hamilton Today and it is closing time, not for the show, but if you were at work, it's closing time and we're glad that you've decided to jump on board with us right here. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. Uh, We are going to be talking about all kinds of stuff for the rest of this hour. Uh, But first, I want to get to some news that came out a couple hours ago. We just had the Grey Cup in Hamilton, as I'm assuming you know. We just had the Grey Cup here. Well, today, just hours ago, the, the Hamilton Tiger Cats put out their schedule for next year already. Strike while the iron is hot, I think is the saying. Uh, people are interested in the team because of how well they did, one win short of what they really wanted. But let's get, let's keep their attention while we have it. So I want to bring in Rick Zamperin, who is still awake after waking up at some unearthly hour this morning to do Good Morning Hamilton. But he's still with us, Rick. You there?
9: Hey, Scott. How are you?
1: I, I'm good. I, I hope I didn't wake you up for this one, but uh, you know it's, it's late in the day for you. It's dark. No, and... not at all. Upright
9: and retaining food.
1: Hey, just before I get to the Ticats, other news, just before I get to the Ticats schedule, um, Canada Soccer has put out something on Twitter saying pre-sale for the Canada-U.S. World Cup qualifying game in t- at Tim Hortons Field on January 30th went on sale today. Sold out! The stadium is now officially a sellout. That was fast.
9: Yeah, not surprised. I mean, even uh, with the game being January 30th, and who knows what the weather's going to be like on that day, uh, You know, there is a lot of demand to watch this Canadian men's soccer team really make history. I mean, there's been only one other time in this program's history that they've qualified for uh the World Cup, and that was all the way back in 1986, really two, three generations ago. Uh, And so this team, which is making waves at the top of its table in the CONCACAF, World Cup qualifying tournament thus far, um, you know, is is facing an arch enemy in the United States. It's on January freaking thirtieth, uh, which is going to be a lot of fun, and and it's in Hamilton. And let's not forget, I mean, this is not this is not commonwealth stadium where there's 60,000 seats this is tim horton's field where there's 24,000 that's not a knock against our uh, our stadium which is you know still uh, very much new and and exciting to be at but uh, you know they're, they're selling about uh, you know less than half of what commonwealth did and they got you know 55 or whatever thousand in commonwealth so so no surprise that as soon as these tickets went on sale they were scooped up quickly hot commodity
1: hot commodity yes uh okay so Um, Before I get to the, and I do want to get to the schedule, we'll only have a second. I was working on Grey Cup Eve, and as a result, I'm furiously pounding away trying to get a column written uh, on deadline, because that's how it works during a Grey Cup. I didn't get to listen to the fifth quarter. Very quickly, you you host the fifth quarter. What was the mood for those who called in after the game? Was it rage at the Ticats losing? Was it sadness? What were people feeling in this town?
9: for i mean it was a mixed bag and it usually is after a loss great cup playoff regular season whatever the case is it's really a mixed bag you get those group of uh, fans who are just dejected and angry and you know changes have to be made then you get that group of fans that you know they they played their uh, their hearts out, you know, better luck next year type of thing. Uh, there were more of the former as opposed to the latter uh, on this uh, fifth quarter, as you can imagine, with uh, the kneel down, the crushing loss in overtime. So the, um, the uh, magnitude of those who were irate certainly overpassed those who were, mm. you know, encouraged at what they saw on the field and were entertained and looking forward to the future. There's a lot more who were, uh, were a little upset with the loss, and mm. understandably so.
1: All right, schedule came out today for next year. Some of the highlights. uh, Ticats open June 11th in Saskatchewan. Home opener the next week, June 18th, Saturday, against Calgary. Uh, Great Cup rematch, which would be the week after that, June 24th, in Winnipeg. Rick, we don't have time to talk about the whole schedule. People can find it online at ticats.ca, all that stuff. I want to ask just about one part of this schedule. Between August the 6th and September the 5th, so the first game in August (laughs) and Labor Day, five weeks of football four weeks they're playing the Argos I've never seen that much compressed action against one team they, they're they going to kill each other
9: yeah they're part of me likes it because you know we've we've rarely seen that and part of me hates it because I want to see it a little bit more spread out and a few more against the Argos down the stretch because after Labor Day they don't play Toronto again until possibly the playoffs if they if they meet in the postseason but uh, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how that four out of five game stretch goes because it starts August, August 6th with a back-to-back and it ends on Labor Day with a back-to-back after they visit the Argos on August 26th. So that's going to be interesting to watch. Who knows how they're going to fare.
1: Yeah, I, I, I've talked to a bunch of people and nobody can... Now, there, back-to-backs in Canadian football are not uncommon, but I can't, no. I've not found anyone who can remember playing a team four weeks out of five in a regular season ever. This, this, is, this, is, uh, this is unique.
9: Yeah, this is almost (laughs) baseball-like.
1: Yeah, yeah. the difference is in baseball, they don't try and kill you. (laughs) That's true, too. Uh, people can find the schedule. It is up, uh, as I say, uh, at TyCats.ca at CFL.ca. You can find it all over the place. But uh, yeah, take a look in the middle of the schedule right there. A lot of Argonaut Blue on the TyCats schedule. Rick Sanford will be on the air tomorrow morning, five thirty, and tomorrow evening, doing something very unique here. Uh, while on my show in the evening, Rick. Bill Kelly, Scott Thompson, and I all together on one show talking about all kinds of stuff from the year that has been. Uh, Rick, I'll let you I'll let you go, I'll let you get some sleep. Really all appreciate right. you doing this today. Thanks for jumping in.
9: You got it, Scott. Take care.
1: Don't know if you know about the OECD. That is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's an intergovernmental economic organization. 38 countries belong to this. And they describe their purpose as being to stimulate economic progress and world trade. It has come out with a report about the future of growth around the world, and I got to tell you, it's a little depressing for those of us in Canada. The headline, OECD predicts Canada will be the worst performing advanced economy over the next decade and the three decades after that. Let me quote one piece of the report. Quote, the political class appears to have lost interest in efforts to raise workers' productivity and real wage growth through higher business investment per worker, faster innovation adoption, and getting the average company to operate at scale. Instead, and now I'm using my own words, it's pointing to a number of governmental policies that it says are missing the mark. Fair? Not fair? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Dr. Lee, thank you as always for your time today. Appreciate it my pleasure thanks very much for inviting me well if i'm reading this correctly and it's quite possibly i'm not i'm not an economist but if i'm reading this correctly it, the, the knock here seems to be that the government is spending an awful lot of money the federal government but it's not on things that are going to grow the economy that are not going to build the economy they are just about spending money for now is it i mean is that a fair description
10: but that's a very nice summary. Uh,
1: let me just step back just for one moment. The OECD
10: is is funded by the Western high, so-called high-income countries. It's so think of it as the club of the rich countries. It's Canada, the United States, Sweden, Germany, Italy. It, there's 34 countries in that club. They're what they're called the high-income countries. They're the wealthiest countries of the world. And the OECD is a gigantic government think tank in Paris. They get all their data from the national statistical agencies of Canada, US, etc. So there's no question about their data. Nobody can challenge their data. It comes straight again. Okay. They're credible. So, yeah, it's completely credible. In fact, they're used by policymakers everywhere including the US and Canada. They're quoted by prime ministers and cabinet ministers and public servants and so forth. So there's no question there. What they're dealing with is the the perennial debate in any uh, western government and it's the debate between what is Quite nicely summarized is the debate between production and consumption, and I'm not trying to use fancy words. Consumption, we all understand that. That's you know paying um, income support programs as part of consumption, Uh, unemployment insurance, social assistance, uh, subsidized housing. We all know that, and we agree that there needs governments need to do that. But they also need to ensure that investment is made because investment is what produces the jobs of tomorrow. Investments in factories, investments in roads. Uh, in ports, um, in new uh, technologies. Now, most tech, uh, private, technol- private investment is done by private companies. You know, GM, GM builds a new plant in Southern Ontario, or Ford, or something like that, and that creates the jobs of tomorrow. Government typically funds the infrastructure, roads, ports, and highways. What's happened, and what they showed with the data, is that governments have been spending in Canada in the last few years much more on the consumption side then on the investment side so the historical balance between the two has tilted so the government this government the current government in Ottawa is decided and it's not just because of covid it was the trend started actually 4 years before covid so people could say well that's because of covid you know there's a pandemic but it started before covid and the second point is that just because covid came along and of course it did come along it had to be responded to no question But that doesn't mean that the future is going to disappear or that the responsibilities of government are going to vanish because you invoke the word COVID pandemic. In other words, the governments have to keep an eye on the future as well as the present. And, yes, of course, we have to support people that need help who are devastated by the pandemic. But what's happened is because, and I've been a critic of this, Randall, I've been arguing that, yes, of course, we should have helped those who needed help. But we gave an awful lot of help to people and companies that didn't need help. There's been massive documentation. The Office of the Auditor General showed this at the provincial level. It's going to be going on at the federal level, giving money to multi-billion-dollar companies, companies to you know, golf courses and so forth. So we were squandering money on the consumption side, because when you give it to them for consumption, that's not investing in the, in the, in the, in the factories or the industries or technologies tomorrow. And so they compared us to other OECD countries other high-income countries. So we're not comparing us to a third-world country that's very poor. And you say, well, that's not a fair comparison. So we're comparing Canada to Germany, to United States of America, to U.K., to France, to Italy. And we are coming dead last on the metrics that we know from 80, 100 years of studying this, and I mean think tanks and academics and governments. We are coming dead last on the, on the investments in productivity and the investments that will produce the jobs of tomorrow. And when I say tomorrow, next year, two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And so it's, you know, it's that old, you know, pay now, pay later, you know, and right now we're we're having um, a a big party. And, you know, we've got a third of a trillion dollars in our bank accounts because of the incredible stimulus that was invested into the economy, spent into the economy. And um, but what we're doing, is we're shortchanging the jobs of the future. Now, for an older person like me, a boomer, you know, I'm going to be retiring in a few years. It's not going to affect me. This is going to fall on younger people because they're going to be inheriting this. And what they're saying, the OECD is saying, the data shows very clearly that we're going to grow more slowly than any other high income country. And people can say, well, who cares about growth? But growth generates the revenues to government that pays for. Health care that pays for long-term care homes, that pays for universities and colleges and high schools. And so we can't sneer at growth because that's what generates the money, the tax revenues, to pay for the future goodies that we want. And that's why there's this trade-off or balancing act. You know, you don't want the temperature too high, you don't want it too low. You want to strike just the Goldilocks point. And they're saying, we've over gone overboard.
1: It is, uh, it is a little discouraged, more than a little discouraging, and I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking about it more. Ian Lee from the Sprout School of Business, always appreciate your time. Thank you for this today. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on
1: 900CHML. All day today, our Twitter poll at 900CHML has been, do you think elementary and high school students will be forced to switch to remote learning in the new year? Yes or no? You can vote at on Twitter, 900CHML, You can find it there. Well, let's dive into this a little more, because we have been told that students in Ontario are being told to take home some of their books and tablets over the Christmas break, just in case remote learning becomes necessary due to this whole Omicron outbreak. Sound at all familiar? Mm -hmm. Uh, We've been down this path before. We have seen certainly the bad side of this. Some would say we've seen some good parts of this, maybe. Maybe. Um, but is the idea, is even contemplating going back to remote learning a good thing? I want to bring in Paul Bennett. He is an education consultant. He is the man behind Schoolhouse the Schoolhouse Institute, uh, Canada's leading educational analyst and consultant on this. Paul, I always appreciate you doing this. Thanks for your time.
11: It's nice to be back with you, Scott.
1: So let's just go right to that big question. Um, is this a good idea? I mean, even if it's necessary or sort of necessary, is it a good idea?
11: The pandemic is an unpredictable beast. I think everyone's bracing for the next pivot for the simple reason that um, this coming spike of Omicron threatens to destabilize much of Ontario society, including the K-12 education system. And having said that, we have to keep in mind that as as little as about a month ago, all the experts, certainly all the academics, had a phrase they were repeating, that schools would be the last to close and the first to open. They have fallen silent over the past week because I think that principle, that schools are the last to close, the first to open, is gradually falling by the wayside. Hmm. Uh, Even um, Dr. um, Tracy Viancourt, who authored the report for the Royal Society of Canada on children and COVID, uh, took a very strong position that under no circumstances, so the school's close is equivocating. I think what we've got is a conjunction of circumstances, uh, no what I would call winning choices, and we're looking at uh, a series of options that I don't think, under normal circumstances, people would contemplate or actually choose.
1: All right, so let's say that, and I think you're, I mean, I certainly think you're right that nobody would choose this and, and it's, a, it's a, a very difficult decision, but let's say that the decision was made that it had to happen. Do you think we've learned enough through the first time of remote learning back last winter about how to do remote learning in a way now that we could do it more successfully than we did it the first time?
11: We've improved to the degree that we are more credible it's not just a farce or uh, let's pretend we're doing remote learning which was the first three months from march of 2020 through to june that was kind of as we now recognize a disaster it was basically everyone trying to figure it out but i would say the last school year depending on what school board you're in there are varying degrees of success we are better prepared to make the pivot now than we were a year ago, that is for sure. But it's a far cry from the benefits of one-on-one in-person learning with a real teacher in the classroom. Having said that, look what's fallen by the wayside. I don't hear anybody arguing that there won't be synchronous learning. I don't hear anyone arguing that we don't want online classes of any type, shape, or form. I don't hear anyone arguing right now that um, this would be the end of the world if we uh, defaulted to online learning. I think what is the greatest concern is those in the schools who are severely learning challenged, who have come to this country um, recently, struggling in the language, or those who are in marginalized communities without the capacity in the home to provide anything approaching uh, quality education.
1: Uh, Yes, and that I I understand that point for sure, and that is a way more complicated part of this than you or I can get to in the next few minutes. So let's just put that aside for a second. Not that we want to dodge the hard issues, but I, I don't think we're going to answer that one. The one question, though, about all the rest of the people, one of the knocks last year was that when March rolled around, the schools said, you know, because of this, we're going to lock in your grades now if you want. And that was sort of, for a lot of kids, that was a ticket to not show up at all for the rest of the year or do very little, would it be more successful if that was not offered? If you told the kids, no, no, this still counts. I mean, even though you're now at home, you got to still show up. If grades still mattered, would it work better?
11: Oh, of course. But I believe that that has been settled. I think educators themselves were embarrassed by what they had to do to justify End of, grade, end of year marks in June of 2020. I think there have been some improvements and no one is really um, holding out this notion that we shouldn't be evaluating the students. We are, we've are we lost our capacity though to do wide scale provincial tests. We've not got enough in terms of a formative or, or, formative or a summative assessment at the end of each term. There's many holes in our evaluation system right now. That is for sure. That has to be rectified if we go back into that. But let me raise a point that I think is often missed in this whole discussion. Do you realize that students and parents are voting with their feet and that school districts don't seem to be in charge right now? Um, in New Brunswick, Well, why, for example, did they end school early on Friday and cancel the last two days of school? Well, there were fewer than twenty-five percent of the students in the classes. Why did the the Nova Scotia um, Minister of Education yesterday do the same thing, canceling the last two days of school and canceling the first two days of the new term? The tro- the problem in a lot of these school districts is parents and kids are so traumatized and and upset and nervous and full of anxieties that they're not going. So you can cold school all you want if you lose the consensus around the desire to be there. I think we're in a moral crisis. I think this is a bigger thing than we realize. So um, I'm reading what each of these school boards in southern Ontario are proposing to do. Some are saying, you know, pack your bags and get ready for remote learning. Others are saying they have confidence in the capacity of the schools to be safe It's all over the map. You know what we've learned from that? There is no consistent message, because I think the school um, systems themselves are in crisis. They really are um, really floundering. I think that's the story. And that's what's very upsetting, I think, for parents and kids, which is the people you look to for direction and a sense of, of purpose, they were all, six months ago, they were all saying schools would always be open, they would never close, and this was because the closing the schools was bad for the mental health and social development of children. Um, that's kind of faded. I think we're into a phase for which, uh, for which none of us were really prepared, and that's just a fair assessment. This is, um, yeah. is, this is a wave that we never saw coming. Yeah, you're right. It's a wave
1: we never saw coming, and in an, a, a, a situation that we never thought we'd see probably again, and uh, and yet here we are. Uh, we got to run. Unfortunately, I could talk about this with you for uh, for hours. Uh, Paul Bennett from Schoolhouse Institute. Um, really appreciate the time as always today.
11: Thank you for this. You're welcome. Thanks for asking. <laughs>
1: You are a brilliant audience. We know that, those who listen to CHML, and very up on the news. So I know for a fact that you are aware of what's going on in Quebec with Bill 21, the secularism bill. And I know that you know that a teacher there has now been fired for wearing a hijab, which has finally, seemingly, led some politicians around the rest of Canada to find their backbone and speak out about this, Uh, which was sorely lacking during the election campaign when. They wouldn't say a thing about this lest they offend anybody in Quebec. But now they are. We've heard it from a whole bunch of parties. And then we read that this response is exactly, apparently anyway, exactly what the separatists there were hoping for, that they were really waiting and banking on some strong reaction so they can begin you know, restructuring or strengthening their, you know, look how they're all against us and they don't understand us and we're different from them and they don't get it kind of position so that we can now, I don't know, move towards separatism again or something along those lines. I want to bring in Peter Grafe, a professor of political science with McMaster University. Uh, Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate the time today. My pleasure. So if this suggestion that this has all been a giant trap laid for English Canada to fall into, and now we've done so. Um, That's kind of a real Sophie's choice for the rest of the country, isn't it? And we can either call out what we see to be clearly wrong or stay out in hope of not not offending anyone and uh, inflaming things in that province. There doesn't seem to be a good choice if, in fact, that's true.
12: Yeah, I mean, I think... uh... Yeah, I mean it's a hard choice in a in a situation like uh, Canada where you have you know different groups that sort of think of themselves as national groups and when there's this kind of disagreement, I mean really what you need is a capacity to understand who within Quebec is opposed to these measures and to uh, find ways of having them kind of lead the idea of what would be an appropriate response or how to intervene. But you know for the most part outside of Quebec we don't really talk uh, to the people who are doing that within Quebec and so. Uh, yeah, there's these uh, reactions, and uh, you know, I liken it to, you know, when there's maybe an uncle in the family who's not all liked, uh, but when uh, <laughs> other people begin criticizing him, everyone is like, "Well, he's the best guy." And so, you yeah. know, similarly, in this instance, when when people outside the you know outside of Quebec begin, you know, saying, "Oh, all Quebecers are racists," and "Oh, that's such a racist province," and so on, you know, the net effect is actually to take the people who are opposed to the bill in Quebec and make them seem like they're. Uh, you know, uh, traitors to the nation or, you know, outside of the out of the nation. And so ultimately, yeah, it weakens, it weakens those. You know, what it would take would be, uh, you know, much more cross-cultural exchange where ultimately, you know, people who are opposed to this bill outside of Quebec uh, would know who's opposing it within Quebec and, and come up with better strategies.
1: Do you look at it, though, do you believe that this was a trap, that, that intentionally a trap that was laid waiting for English Canada to do this, or do you think that's giving too much credit?
12: uh yeah i mean i I think it's giving too much credit uh i mean ultimately you know the push towards this bill is based on uh the idea or by you know a bunch of nationalists who say we don't agree with the way Canada does multi- multiculturalism uh we we much prefer what's happening in Europe with a uh, you know a bunch of these laws around things like secularism and uh a kind of the the return of uh a certain you know european uh you know a certain nationalism in a bunch of those countries in, in response to immigration and so they're following that course. Um, you know, but in doing that, part of the, the attraction is ultimately is that it's creating a sense of difference between Quebec and the rest of the country. And so, you know, so I don't think it's a deliberate trap, but when you do that and one of the rest of the country says, well, this is terrible, well, in a way, it it's kind of serves the purpose of, of, of a nationalist, which is to show the difference of the way you do things. And, uh, you know, the anger in the rest of the country and the you know, the willingness to uh make really sweeping statements, so, you know, it allows again that kind of response to say, well the rest of the country actually doesn't understand, you know, the way we've discussed these things. The fact that we've had parliamentary, you know, commissions and debates and that, you know, this law is a result of probably about twelve years uh of uh, you know, partisan debate in politics. Uh you know, and so, yeah, you you may you may disagree with it, but uh to come from the outside and say, Oh, this is just kind of knee jerk racism is uh you know, kind of miss the point of of the development of that debate. So, yeah, I don't think it's a trap, but, uh, you know, a country like Canada, where you have uh, people working in different languages and having different debates, uh, uh, you know, you you will tend to fall into these things if you're not paying attention to to what's happening uh, in the other language community.
1: But we we do, like, our politicians do have to speak out against this, don't they? I mean, otherwise are you not... Essentially, giving tacit approval to human rights violations within your own country. I mean, so many people were upset when the politicians all ran for cover during the election, and nobody would have the backbone to stand up. They do have to say something, don't they?
12: Well, I mean, it's uh, you know, it's a difficult choice. I mean, yeah, they could say something. Uh, obviously, none of them want to say it for very uh, you know self interested reasons that they have to win uh, win votes in mm. the back and in the rest yes, of the country. Yes. And, there's a quarter of the seats in the country in Quebec, and they're seeing and talking about this in a very different way. So, yeah, I mean, you know, that's a kind of the, the, the short-term, uh, I think, reason why they're not. You know, in the longer-term reason, though, is uh, I mean, there's uh, I think this debate has shown that uh, the Canadian way of doing multiculturalism and thinking about religious freedom uh, isn't, uh, you know, a majority consensus. And so, yeah, there probably uh, is a sense, you know, politicians should show some backbone and make the case for, you know, what they stand for. Um, you know, but it's not clear ultimately that, uh, you know, really pushing one way of being is necessarily going to create harmony. So, but if yeah, you the, don't you know, people know. do have to, to stand up, but uh, if they do, they should also be aware that the, the response in part may be to uh, increase, uh, you know, national division.
1: Yeah, but if you don't, and then the next time there is a human rights issue in Alberta or in Manitoba or Saskatchewan, how do you possibly suddenly jump up and say this is totally wrong if you've ignored the one you've essentially then allowed anything to happen in the country because you're going to be hypocritical if you say something
12: well i mean that's i guess the, you know the question that are, we have to ask of politicians in a diverse country to what extent is it important that we have one way of thinking about rights in the country and uh, what way do we have many and indeed again you get back to your sophie's choice at the beginning i mean these are that's a trade off right if we want to have one sense of uh, rights in canada then yes we need politicians to show this kind of courage at this moment uh, if we think ultimately that uh, different uh, parts of the country may come to different understandings about some of these trade offs uh, you know then you come to a different response you know and if, if we were to you know ask uh, many quebec politicians today you know we you make the argument that this is a huge human rights issue and they'd say that, you know, similar legislation to Quebec's has been upheld by the European Court of Justice, right? And so, you you know, know. there's a Canadian way of thinking about these rights, Uh, you know, there's a European one. That's not to say that there isn't a reason to fight for the Canadian one, but, uh, you know, a bit of kind of hubris that, yeah, this is actually one way, in one very kind of modern way, that we we talk about these things in Canada, but there's many other democracies that have, have taken a different approach. So, yeah, make the case for your own, but, uh, you know, understand that uh, the, the, the people you're opposing aren't, you know, necessarily on the sort of the far end of, uh, you know, the human rights spectrum.
1: Peter Gray from McMaster University, very much appreciate the time. As always, thank you. You're welcome.
12: If it's happening now, we're
1: talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson
0: on 900CHML.
1: want to talk about something that uh, we are learning about that has been... Well, we we knew this was coming from City Hall. We just didn't know to what degree, but we are learning it now. And that is that the probe into the asphalt and the paving of the Red Hill Creek Expressway, the probe, the inquiry that council signed on for, um, with, by the way, pretty strong public support for this. So, you know, we are those who are saying they never should have done this. The public was very much behind this. But What we are learning now is that the cost of this thing is exploding. That we didn't sign on for, that the council didn't really sign on for. At one time, they said this thing was going to be $11 million at the upper end. I mean, the highest it's going to go was $11 million, which is still extraordinary. Now we're hearing it could touch $20 million, which is absolutely mind-blowing and quite frankly a little frustrating. I want to bring in Ward 11 councilor Brenda Johnson to the show. Councilor, thank you for the time. Today I appreciate this.
5: Hi, how are you?
1: Well, I'm trying to understand how we go from 11 million to 20 million dollars in an inquiry. It seems like an extraordinary amount of money already, and then we're almost doubling it. I don't I don't know how we got here.
5: You know what? I had the same reaction. I think it came on December the 8th, uh, the initial report came forward, and I remember saying at the very beginning, I did not vote for this. I wanted an Auditor General's report for a third of the cost. All we needed was what happened, who's to blame, if anyone's to blame, and how do we correct this so it doesn't happen again. An Auditor General's report would have given us that in a short period of time, less money and when I saw this report, I think it was for the public record, I said, this is crap.
1: Mm. Well, and yeah, and so we haven't even reached the hearing, the open hearing phase of this, and we're already talking that it's going to hit 20 million. I don't have any expectation it's going to stop there either, quite honestly, the way this is going. But well, here's what, what I really don't.
5: That the hearing's going to cost $5,405 per day. So oh, depending okay. on how many people, it says right in the report and it And depending on how many witnesses and and uh, information that they need to go through, uh, you do the math.
1: Prior to that, though, and, and here's what I really don't understand. What is being done that costs so darn much? how How have we added seven million dollars to this? what What is the work that's being done that would cost seven million dollars?
5: Well, if you take a look at the at the um, I think it's on page four, what is it page four of seven. It tells you what all the expenses are, and it breaks it down, what the city's expenses were, external legal counsel, commission counsel, and other expenses. Commission counsel alone uh, came to $6,500,000. We're already spent $11.1 million to date. So 6.5 of that is just from the commission counsel.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we knew someone was going to get rich out of this. Uh, It turns out that it's the lawyers that are going to get rich out of this. And that seems to but this, you know, the interesting thing is, this is not the first time maybe with lawyers, yes, but it was not that long ago that council was debating about why consultants always cost so much and why they seem to be, you know, such an expensive thing. Are, are, do people, when they get involved with signing on to something, with whether it's city or provincial or federal, when they see that it's the public purse, does the price tag just go up for everything?
5: I don't know that. Have to, you'd have to ask the private sector what they do. Um, I just find it very frustrating from, from a counselor's point of view. Uh, when we were given the staff report, I think it was April. We found out about this, by the way, on in February. Uh, We had, um, and just to give people some context, council has one collective employee, and that's the city manager. The city manager is then responsible for hiring and firing of of all the senior staff, and then it it filters down from there. One of the senior staff left office and, and was reallocated to another office, and fresh eyes came into that office and saw this document. And the document said the friction test was inconclusive. And that's for the public record. We found out about this, I believe it was February the 6th. It was a Wednesday night. We went in camera, we found out about it, and we were not going to come back out of camera unless we had a press release, and we did. I think it was 1 o'clock in the morning. It was really, really late. And so we knew about it three hours before the public did. And and, And it was accompanied with an apology because every time there was a significant incident on the Red Hill... My colleagues, council would go after staff and say the same thing: Is this road safe? Is there something attributing to these uh, these uh, accidents? And repeatedly, we were told no. Everything's fine. It was designed properly. It was maintained properly. And then we found out on on February the sixth. So April now comes forward because we said we gave them direction: Please go away. Come back with a way how we're going to find out what happened. Who's to blame if there is someone to blame, and how do we ensure this does not happen again? So they came back with a report. I think it was April 19th or something, and they came back with a report saying, "Here's your options," and one of them was an auditor general's uh, report, uh, uh, and the other one was this um, uh, this inquiry. And the inquiry at that time they said would be probably up to about six to eight million dollars, I believe. Well, we're now less. Well, we're a year. We're a year and a yeah a year and a half so we're up to 11.1 million and the hearing hasn't even started yet and they are Yeah, it hasn't even started. Yeah, and the and they're predicting the hearing will be $5400 a day. So what
1: counselor, uh, once Pandora's box has been opened though and an inquiry has been launched does council does anyone at the city have any control over what this costs or it costs what it costs?
5: I believe that's and that's one of the reasons why Councilor Ferguson and I both voted away from this and wanted to get the Auditor General is because you do not once once you've given the perimeters, once you've given every, uh, the terms of reference this is what we want you to find it keeps going until it's done and and it's whoever's in charge is the one who will deem that it's done and that's why the public was very supportive behind this because it felt that if if this inquiry was to begin council would have little to know. Um, influence over it. And that would keep things separated. So the inqu- in the inquiry would do its job and council would have to sit back and wait for the results.
1: You know, I, we got to run. Uh, yeah, we got to run. Unfortunately, I mean, look, it's it's basic math. And, and this is not, I mean, I, I was figuring this out today at 20 million bucks. If 100 people are working on this inquiry, we're paying them all $200,000, which is you know, I mean, counselors make half that most people listening aren't going to make that. It's just, it's Never. just, it's an extraordinary amount of money.
5: Yeah. And it just even blows your mind. Right there. There. The commission costs $400,000 a month until January the it, 1st, 2022. And then it was an average of $350,000 a month until June the 1st, 2022. After $200,000 a month.
1: It is wow. mind blowing. It is. Yeah, it is, is, is mind blowing. Um, Councillor Brenda Johnson, very much appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for doing this.
5: Well, thanks for it. We finally connected. Scott, take care.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, we've tried to have Councillor on a few times before, and schedules <laughs> never work. So uh, we were able to make it happen this time. Uh, let's take a break back after this on Hamilton Today. Stay with us. <laughs> It is 621 here on Hamilton Today. Scott Radley sitting in, not doing my normal show. If you're just joining us, I'm just rapping because I've been doing Scott Thompson's Hamilton Today show all day. But we thought we would bring a piece of of home into the other show. So it is time for Ben's story of the day. If you're not a regular listener, uh, you'll pick it up pretty quickly. Ben is back at the home office. Ben is pressing buttons and pulling levers and doing whatever radio people do to keep us on the air. I'm going to give Ben three stories from around the world, and then Ben will decide which one is his favorite, and that will become his story of the day. You can play along at home. Just simply replace his name with yours and make your own choice, and it's it's really an easy game to play at home or in the car. It's not complicated. Anyway, here we go. Ben, story number one comes from Delaware, where a guy went into a bank and committed an armed robbery. Handed a note to the teller. I, amazingly, they still have tellers in banks there. I don't think we still have tellers here behind a counter, but they did. Anyway, handed a note to the teller, and she gave him an undisclosed amount of cash and watched him leave the bank and walk to the front of the building and promptly deposit it through the ATM into his bank account. <laughs>
0: I mean, hey, what's he going to do with all this cash? It's clearly evidence. He can't have that with him at all times.
1: I, I, you know, criminals are not always the smartest people. This is a plan that was not well thought out. No. There was not a lot of thinking before this about, well, what about my getaway? Maybe he I know was, I'll deposit it.
0: Yeah, I think he was thinking the exact thing. He was going, wait, what if there was no getaway? What if I don't need to get away? Why? I don't have the money. I just give it right back into my account. It's
1: perfect. Who can prove? You Who can, can prove? Exactly. Yes. Story number 2 comes from Greenwood, South Carolina. Uh, this is this is a funny because nobody was hurt. If if somebody was hurt we wouldn't do this, but um, in a in a assisted living facility in South Carolina, some people own weaponry, I guess, and a guy in the assisted living facility it seems found an interesting place to store, was looking for a place to store some bullets.
0: Go and on. I don't
1: know, I don't know if he thought this through or if he thought he was putting them somewhere else. Anyway, someone stored some bullets in a toaster oven. <laughs> <laughs> and when someone started the toaster oven. There were reports of gunfire in this assisted living facility, and the SWAT team came and they discovered that the toaster oven was shooting at people. Uh, Ah, yes. In the end, it all worked out okay.
0: It sounds like it's the plot of a very bad knockoff Transformers movie. (laughs) The toaster starts turning into a Decepticon and starts firing off like Yosemite
1: Sam everywhere. The the poor guy or woman I don't know I'll assume guy the poor guy who was thought he was I mean again who knows if he thought he was storing it somewhere safe or whatever but but the person I feel badly for is the person who was just trying to make their bagel that morning (laughs) and all of a sudden bam 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 this gunfire hitting the floor I just wanted a bagel Uh, story number three comes from Akron Ohio where police are investigating a rather unique theft. And I don't even know how you pull this one off, but they are um, they are trying to find the person who stole the 58-foot-long pedestrian bridge from the little Cuyahoga River Park. <laughs> <laughs> so, even if you could figure out how to steal a pedestrian, a 58-foot bridge, how do you make it home with that somehow where no one notices... That guy's got a 58 foot pedestrian bridge on his car. <laughs> or those guys are carrying a 58 foot pedestrian bridge.
0: Does it just look like two guys carrying a 2x4 that's just excessively long one on no, each it's end a and they're metal, just going
1: along? How did, It's a metal bridge. I don't think you could have carried it. This thing would have weighed a ton. You would have had to put it on a car and drive with a pedestrian bridge on your car. <laughs>
0: It looks like the National Lampoon Christmas vacation trees That's pretty much. hanging off the front and the back end at
1: the same time. And how do you make a turn? I mean, this is, anyway, somewhat, somehow it, it's a complete mystery that no one seemed to see anything. No one knows where it is. And even if, even if no one had seen it, wouldn't just a drive around Akron by a bunch of cops looking around notice a 58-foot bridge lying somewhere? It's not exactly
0: small or easy to hide. Where do you no. put it? In your Ooh. basement?
1: In the spare closet? Not, uh, in another park? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have crossed state lines, but anyway, who knows? Does the, do so the neighbors, we'll...
0: Sorry, I got to ask. Do the neighbors then look over the fence and go, oh, hey, Ron, nice, uh, nice 58-foot pedestrian bridge you got there? <laughs>
1: Where'd you, ah, where'd picked you get it that? Picked we're, it up on the way home. Picked it up on the way home. It was. Someone left it in front of their house in their garbage. I just picked it up.
0: <laughs> if you can haul it, you can have it. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> so will your story of the day today be the bank robber who left the bank with his haul and immediately deposited it into the ATM in front of the bank? Will it be the old feller who stored his bullets in a toaster oven, which led to a gunfire situation in an old folks' home? Or will it be the person in Akron who stole a 58-foot pedestrian bridge and police have no idea where it is now?
0: The idea of a 58-foot pedestrian bridge can just go missing? Like, just, oh, it's not there anymore. It's gone. Like, how how does this even happen? You don't just take a Sawzall and just take it apart. You gotta, it, this took time and effort, and yet it just disappears? How does this happen?
1: I have well, no idea. But clearly those thieves gave it more thought than the bank robber. Oh, most for certainly. For their getaway.
0: Now that being said, the next movies that come out, they better have some sort of distraction grenade that involves a toaster oven full of bullets. That's I a do great want to idea. See that. For
1: I that. do want to see that. All just appliances, armed <laughs> appliances.
0: Well, they do have that. It's called Terminator
1: there we go uh folks we are out of time for today now uh some news tomorrow morning 9 a.m bill kelly has a bonus town hall with mayor fred eisenberger so tune in for that i believe they'll be taking calls and taking questions the mayor will be taking your calls and your questions so be aware of that uh tomorrow i will be back in again for scott thompson three till 6 30 five o'clock till 6 30 doing something we've not done before rick Sampron and bill kelly and i three of the hosts from this station will be on together talking in a round table about all kinds of stuff we're gonna have a lot of fun we've never done this before so we're going to uh, we're gonna have fun tune in for that tune in at three but you know what at the end of the day when you finish work even if you can't be there at three five o'clock be there for that one we really appreciate you listening hope you have a fantastic evening thanks to will for lining everything up really appreciate it we'll talk to you soon Bye.